You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Um, thanks for your warm welcome. Everyone that I've met has been so, so kind and gracious. And as Ovi mentioned, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 and uh, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And the title of the message is The Unity of the Church in the Midst of a Divided World. And I come to you today with, uh, like probably many of you, with heavy hearts. I receive the news feeds about the war in Ukraine and the devastation and the loss of life with over one million refugees fleeing for safety and many more in the days ahead. And so we pray for peace in Ukraine. We pray for peace in, that, in the world. Ukraine is not the only place of war, it is the one that is most prominent in our minds right now. And I know many in this room uh, have people, have loved ones, family members that live close by and you're pl- praying for their safety. And so we come and today and the world is at war. The world is at war. And unfortunately, my friends, we also live in a nation that is divided, a nation of red states and blue states, a nation over the past years that have been divided by a pandemic, something that could have brought us together has shown the division that we have, a nation divided along racial lines, along ugly history of racial injustice that is still with us today. So we live in a world, we live in a world that is at war, we live in a nation that is divided, and unfortunately in many ways we have a church that is fractured, a church that despite the Lord's prayer that we would be one as He and the Father are one, that we are fractured, and I'm not just talking about denominational distinctives, we're part of the EFCA, and it's okay to have denominational distinctives along secondary issues, but we're fractured. Instead of showing love, we show hatred so many times. I was in a meeting the other day, and this man, I had met him for the first time, a dear man, his child is off at college, and she sent her dad a text you know, what are the biggest objections to Christianity, do you think? One of the biggest objections I'm going to face on my college campus. I want to be prepared for them. And so he was asking us what we thought the answer to that was. And some answers, well, the disagreements, the di- uh, we don't even know what, we don't even share many of the same beliefs. And, and uh, um, I think oftentimes it's not in the disagreements we have about secondary issues but it's in the way that we disagree that so tarnishes the reputation of the church. I want to say it is so wonderful to be here, a church that's committed to prayer. Just You demonstrated that this morning in praying for Nick and Amanda, and to hear about beginning the Lord's Day in prayer. Invite 
If you are not already joining in and you're able to, to do that, that is so important because that is what brings us together. So I want us to turn in our passage, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, and begin to unpack that together today. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Blessed be the reading of God's Word. If you look in your Bible, it begins with, therefore, I therefore. Here, Paul is connecting what is about to come in the next three chapters with the previous three chapters. So in chapters one through three, as you've been walking through Ephesians, unfolds primarily orthodoxy, correct doctrine. Beginning the transition here is a focus on orthopraxy, godly living. But godly living is based upon proper understanding of who God is and our response to Him. And so it's just as way of reminder, read a few passages that you've been walking through over the recent days. In chapter 1 and verse 4, we read, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And in verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The wonderful gospel that Jesus came and lived a life we could never live and died a death on a cross so that we could have eternal life, so that our sins could be forgiven. And then when the Holy Spirit is our seal. The Holy Spirit indwells us and is the inheritance, the guarantee of our inheritance that we share with all believers in all time. In chapter 2, you learned about the core doctrine in verses 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not a result of works so that no one can boast. It is by the grace of God, through saving faith in Jesus Christ, that we are saved, not by our works. And verse 14, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in this flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Both one. Jew and Gentile gathered together as one. All peoples gathered together all those who place their faith in Christ gathered together as one because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. 
chapter 3, we learn that the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when Paul says, therefore, he's connecting everything he's going to say with those first three chapters. But he doesn't go, I therefore urge you. There's, there's some words in between that. He says, I, a prisoner of the Lord. It's the third time in Ephesians he's talked about his imprisonment. In chapter 3 and verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus. In verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is saying to live in a manner worthy of our calling, it's worth it. I'm in prison. It's worth it. The opposition you're going to face, the persecution you're going to face, it's worth it. My life testifies to it, for I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I will never deny my Lord, because it is worth it. Paul is telling us the gospel is worth suffering for. It is so contrary to our American middle-class sensibilities, where we want the comfortable house and the comfortable car and the nice clothes and a good education for ourselves and our children, and those things are fine and good. But if we have to choose between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the comfortable house, I will gladly walk away from the house. Jesus warned us that opposition would come. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. It is when adversity comes to the church that gives us the opportunity to bear witness of King Jesus. We learn that the apostles live this Acts 5, chapter 40, or <laughs> Acts 5, verse 41, after being beaten for proclaiming the gospel and being warned not to speak in the name of Jesus, they left the presence of the couple rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, rejoicing that they suffered for Jesus. And so Paul says, I urge you in light of all of this to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You might remember that a few chapters earlier in chapter 2, he also talked about walking. But at that time he said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world. Paul's making it crystal clear there's, there's two paths. We can follow the path of the Lord, or we can follow the path of the world, but we can't, choose, we can't do both. We used to walk in this way that led to death. I used to walk in this way. When I came to faith as a senior in high school, I was an angry young man. I was angry at my parents. I felt lonely and discouraged. On the outside, I had it all together. Played on the baseball team, straight A's, jazz bands, going to school, had a bright future, but I was a rebellious young man. I worked at a clothing store. 
and my coworkers were older, and I followed their way. I followed their way. And then my friend began taking me to this youth group he was going to. And at first, I kind of stood in the back. I intentionally clapped off beat. Kind of probably drove people. I drove you crazy, I'm sure. But I kept going back because there was something different about these people. There was something different. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it had something to do with this Jesus. And they slowly, lovingly shared the gospel with me. And so one day in a small little band practice room in 1991, just before Thanksgiving, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Most consequential, important decision that I ever made in my life. It's changed everything. Such a contrast, the way I used to walk and the way I walk now. Not saying I'm perfect, I'm a sinner. As Paul says, the chief of sinners. But that has made all the difference. I pray for my children that they will have the testimony that my wife had of growing up in a Christian home and hearing the Bible stories and the gospel proclaimed at a young age. She came to Christ as a young girl, and I think she might be the only woman I know and the only person I know who never went through rebellious teenage years. It's, she was just blessed with a loving home, and God spared her from so much difficulty. So whatever your testimony is, if it's like my wife's, or if it's more like mine, or however it is unique to you, know that we no longer walk in a path that led to destruction, to death. Paul is urging us, pleading with us, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Why are we, why is this so important? I'm going to skip over a few verses. It's to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the unity of the church. A unified church bears a witness to the world, a church that is divided does not bear as strong of a witness. So Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. And there's four graces that are about to, to follow, and we see them live perfectly in the life of Jesus, and they kind of build like a crescendo. Kind of like they start off kind of quiet, and they just build and build and build and get louder and louder. And the first one is humility. Humility is oftentimes seen as a weakness today. Humility is mocked. You know what? It was no different in the time of Paul. When he used this word humility, it was commonly used in a derogatory sense. You look down on them. But what is humility? It's the lowliness that we have because we know we are completely dependent upon the Lord. Paul writes in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. A few verses later describing Jesus and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John Piper says that humility means that I am not the center. Truth is the center. And I submit to the truth and go where it leads. I am not the center. So in other words, I don't make much of myself. Probably maybe the simplest little definition of humility. I don't make much of myself. Because I'm not the center. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness or meekness. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says that the meek will inherit the earth. A gentleness is a consideration for others. If humility is not making much of ourselves, gentleness is making much of others. If humility is not making much of ourselves, gentleness is making much of others. It's a willingness to waive one's rights. Later on in Ephesians, we're called to submit to one another. You want a picture of gentleness? It's Jesus, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, bending down on his knee to wash his disciples' feet. Their feet that were covered in sand and mud and sweat, I'm sure they smelled. And the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, washed their feet. continues to build. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Patience is long-suffering. If humility is not making much of ourselves, if gentleness is making much of others, patience is making an allowance for others' shortcomings. It's enduring wrong rather than going into a rage. Sometimes we have this idea that there's a God of the Old Testament and then a God of the New Testament. But in Exodus, excuse me, Exodus 34, we read, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is who God is. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That is displayed perfectly in our Lord. Remember as he was walking into Jerusalem, he wept for the city, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. The end of Revelation ends with 
the Spirit, the Bride, saying, come, return, Lord Jesus, come. And when we look at all the war and the destruction, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come, make everything right. Make everything new. Establish your just reign. And Peter reminds us about the patience of God in terms of Christ's delay. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but His patience toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 His patient toward you. Do you feel the Lord's patience? He was patient with me. He is, continues to be patient with me. And until He returns, it gives us time, it gives us opportunity to share the hope that we have in Jesus with a hurting, fractured world. The hope that we have in the gospel. I was reminded the other day, I was convicted of this, this idea of patience. I was a little upset with my dear bride And as best I could to hide it, my 10-year-old caught on pretty quick. Why wasn't I more patient? She did nothing wrong. We just had a different vantage point. And I liked my way better. So it continues to build. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So if humility is not making much of ourselves, if gentleness is making much of others, if patience is making an allowance for the shortcomings of others. We come to bearing with one another in love. There's a mutuality here. Later on, we'll read in Ephesians that we are to submit to one another. I want to, as we look at these past few years, and I'm not speaking about this church, I'm speaking about just the church in general, how would things have played out differently if we would have had a posture of humility, if we would have been more gentle, if we would have been more patient, if we would have been willing to bear with one another in love? Would we have had the division over masks in our churches? Could we have moved the conversation about racial injustice and unrest forward instead of so many times holding it back? Would we have allowed political differences to divide our churches? Because there are some churches that it's not a safe place to go into if you have a Joe Biden sticker on your window. 
There's other churches. It's not a safe place to go into if you have a Donald Trump sticker on your window. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We have one king, King Jesus. Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in a mighty army. Our hope is in Jesus. The EFCA, we have an ethos of an essentials unity and non-essentials charity. And in all things, Jesus Christ. Our mission statement, we say we exist to glorify God by multiplying transformational churches among all people. Because Ephesians 4 is talking about the unity of the church, the the hostility that exists between people of different ethnicities. Jesus tears that down in the church. We don't dismiss those differences. We see each other. We're proud of our heritages. But we are united in Jesus. So with all of this, Paul says, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We maintain the unity. We don't create it. The Spirit creates it. He draws, the Spirit draws us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Spirit creates the unity. But we have to maintain that unity. We need to be eager to maintain it. It's, it's hard to see it in the English. There's an urgency to it. The words of Nike, just do it. Get after it. basis for this exhortation comes from Ephesians 2.16, where we read that through Christ, both Jewish and Gentile believers have been reconciled in one body, not two. There's not one church for one group and another church and another church. No, there's one church. In 2.18, we've been granted access to the Father in one spirit. We've got to fight for it. You have a beautiful thing here. And don't let the devil sniff it out. That's not the right word. You know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Because he wants to take it away. He wants to rob you of your joy. He wants to rob you of the unity of this place. And you must defend it. And we defend that not by getting our way all the time, but by thinking of others, being humble, being gentle, being patient. We need to fight for unity. But Paul is really clear that this is not at the expense of truth. This is not at the expense of truth. We live in a religiously pluralistic world. There is religious pluralism that is descriptive and religious pluralism that is prescriptive. And it is a descriptive fact. There are many religions. 
We think we have them all and there's another one. That's just a fact. But then there's a prescriptive religious pluralism that says that all paths get to God. It is taught in many of our universities. It is the water in which we swim in popular culture. There's not truth anymore, according to culture. There's your truth and my truth. What if they don't agree? Either we're both wrong or one of us is wrong, but we both can't be right. So unity is not at the expense of truth. And Paul unpacks for us here seven important truths. And he doesn't have any segue. He just he goes right from it, eager to maintain the unity, the spirit, and the bond of peace. There is one body. The church, it's a heavenly reality of all believers for all time. My friends, this church, this church is not just a little splinter of it. This church is the manifestation of that heavenly reality here in this community of Garden City. And the way we live out the unity of the universal church is in the context of the local church of brothers and sisters in Christ who love one another and care for one another and carry one another's burdens and pray for one another. The ecclesia is a gathered assembly of people. The church is the ecclesia, the gathered assembly. You can't do Christianity watching TV, sitting on your couch with a cup of coffee. There's an informality that has come into the church over the past two years that lacks a reverence for God, that lacks a value for gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are people pragmatically saying that the hybrid church, it's here to stay, and I say, please, no. The church is when we come together as brothers and sisters. That is how God made us. We must not neglect gathering together, as the author of Hebrews says. The only way to live out the one another's is in the context of a covenant community of brothers and sisters in Christ, being committed to one another, being committed to one another's welfare, being committed to one another's spiritual growth, being committed to one another's holiness. You can't do that from your couch and your slippers. Paul goes on, there is one body and one spirit. By the one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. It is the spirit that brings unity, that animates our worship and mobilizes the church for mission and service. I love that you're worshiping in the park this summer. I love that you have a heart for this community and the eternal destiny of those that live here. It's the spirit that brings us together. You're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One hope. The hope of the gospel, the hope of eternal life with Jesus. 
despite all the religions of the world, there is only one hope. We need to be clear that the church is not the hope. Jesus is the hope, and it is the church's responsibility to take the manifold wisdom of God to the nations. There's one hope. So as we follow on the steps of Jesus, when when He walked into Jerusalem, He wept for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Have we wept for our community? Have we wept for our co-workers and our neighbors because they don't know the Lord? When we post on Facebook, are we going to attack and critique or are we going to share the hope that we have in Jesus? Because they're watching us. They want to know. I remember when I was with that youth group, as an 18-year-old angry man, and I could tell there was something different about them. And I knew it had to do with Jesus. Let's make that the case in our neighborhoods. When people come into our presence, they can tell there's something different amongst us. We're not like other places. And that Jesus is the difference. He's the reason that there's something different about us. There's one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord. We worship King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, Almighty God. He is the only Lord. There is no other. We are called to one faith. There's not a faith for the Gentiles and the Jews. There's one faith, a historic, orthodox Christian faith. In the AFCA, we we aim to be an association of churches for all believers, but believers only. So we focus on God as creator on the Trinity, one God of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. But there's some things we don't address. There are some Calvinists in the free church, and there are some Arminians in the free church. There are some people that believe the charismatic gifts have ceased. There are others that believe they have not. So we allow for difference among secondary issues. We want to stay focused on the historic gospel of the Christian faith that's been passed down to us for over 2,000 years. There is one faith and there is one baptism. Galatians 3, Paul writes, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. There's one baptism. When we celebrate baptism in, this, in the church and someone is immersed in the water, they're identifying with the death of Christ on the cross. And when they come out of the water, they're identifying with Christ's resurrection. There's one baptism. And lastly, there is one God and Father of all 
who is over all and through all and in all. Now, while it is true that God is the creator of the universe, that nothing exists that He did not create, this is focusing upon God as our Father. He's the Father of all who believe. So He's over all. He's transcendent over all of His children. He sees all of us in His infinite wisdom and knowledge. He's over all of us. He is through all of us. We are the agents through whom God works. God works through us, through our prayers, through our proclamation of the gospel, through our service to neighbor. God works through us. We are the body of Christ. And in all, believers constitute His dwelling place in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. So God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. One of the things I appreciate, I love about this passage is its Trinitarian nature of one God, of one Lord, and one Spirit. So lest I go over, may I close with this. Let's walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's walk with humility, not making much of ourselves. Let's walk with gentleness, making much of others. Let's walk with patience, making allowance for others' shortcomings. And let's bear with one another in love, mutually submitting to one another, caring more about the other than about ourself. We must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Christ. In the bond of peace, excuse me. That will be our corporate witness to a hurting world. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.